I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History. Hello, Dan. Hello, Bernie. We are back. Let's talk about the Greeks. Let's talk about the Greeks. And I and I do have a mess another message from a from a fa- a Facebook fan, I guess. It was funny because it came in in Cyrillic and I took me a, I couldn't even find it on the page. I had a really f- came up on my notifications on my phone, then I found it and I translated it. So, I had posted an article about amphorae that were found in Ukraine. I think it was I think it was actually in like it was now like they found it there when they were digging up uh, trenches for the war. And that's going on right now as a recording, and they found these Greek amphorae. And so I thought that was interesting. They posted it, and the uh, person posted back. Does it say to amphorae? Now, now I'm translating from this, so that, you know, this maybe it isn't written in the bad, you know, however the, the syntax is. Anyway, <clears throat> does it say to amphorae that they are Greek? Don't. Where did Greek come from? They may be part of another culture, for example, Macedonian. How long will you lie to the world that everything... Is Mace- everything Macedonian is Greek. Greeks have existed since 1928. There are no Greeks in antiquity. They are German fiction. <laughs> okay, so if there are no Greeks, then this episode will be very short. Yeah, it definitely will. Well, maybe these are Macedonians that we're talking about, or some other Sumerians, maybe. I don't know. Uh, the, the name Greeks is, of course, problematic because it comes from uh, the Romans. They encountered a tribe, a village, something in the area of Greece today that called themselves the Grecii. Ah. So they were just, okay, they're all Greeks. But That's the, southern Rome. That's Remember we talked about that they have they still speak there. It's probably in southern Rome. So the term... I mean, Italy, sorry. Go ahead. The term used more correctly in ancient sources are the Hellenes. 
And of course, we do have the, the Dorians and the Kians and their combined identities, sort of the Hellenes. But I think there are Greeks in our story. I hope so. At least that was Cambridge Ancient History says. I mean, there's some kind of people. But, I mean, yeah, we kind of call them something. There's definitely people living on these islands and, you know, in, in the Aegean. and in... So let's define that when we mention Greeks, we mean the the answers, the the offspring of the Dorians and the Kians in the area of yeah. what is today Greece and nearby. Correct. And I mean, you know, Macedonians were, the Greeks came from that area and the people still there and they were connect, you know, they were close to them. And obviously, eventually they became pretty part, good part of Greece because we know what happens later. I think the difference between Macedonians and Greeks is a highly infected question. Yes. Even uh, soon in our history. Yeah, and even today, I think there's there's some... I don't want to wade into any political battles that I have no idea about, I believe. And of course, this this question is very influenced by Alexander, but uh, we have a lot of time to go before we get yeah, to Alexander the yes, Great. Yes, we do. I'll probably just mention him quickly. He's only in one decade. <laughs> he really... Oh, no, he, co- <laughs> he covers two, right? But it's still 10 years when he does his business. I listened to a podcast that is like 100 episodes about just Alexander. I had a whole history class on it, a whole semester. Okay, but we are 300 years before Alexander, so what happens in... Yes, we're back, we're still... This is really interesting, too. Like, you know, we, the Greeks have been colonizing for a long time, right? But they're really... Now they're starting to do a lot of different... So anyway, this... Well, the first colony we got here is um, Perinthius, and that was founded by settlers from Samos. And that 601 BC is the traditional date. So Perinthius is signing kind of, it's in Turkey, it's near Istanbul, or it's near, I should say it's near... Um, <laughs> it is a, it's near Constantinople, Istanbul, that, that place, the, the Golden Horn. <laughs> Byzantium, and the, Byzantium, yeah, <clears throat> Byzantium in those days. And uh, from Samos to, um, to, well, today it's, I can't even pronounce it, it's a city in Turkey. It is... 641 kilometers, which is about 500 miles. That would have been by sea. That, that's a short colonization trip. Yeah. That, they're probably doing business around there. And if you remember, Byzantium was already founded too. So they were, you know, they were starting to get around. You know, Greeks were starting to move around in this area over there, set up colonies. So this was a, it was a great and flourishing town of ancient Thrace. So this is considered Thrace. It's situated on the Sea of Marmara. Yeah, it was 56 miles west of Byzantium. It's on a small peninsula on a bay. And it was built like an amphitheater on the downward slope of a hill. Now, we're talking about Matt Philip the Great, right? So it's, it's really known from its defense against Philip the Great of Macedon. And it was, it was an even more important town at the time than Byzantium because it had a good harbor, had several good roads, and it was a seat of extensive commerce. And some of its coins are still around. And we learned that they had a lot of festivals there. That's really about, about there, but I have a Samos is actually was pretty interesting uh, little place there in Greece. It was an especially rich and powerful city-state, and is known for its vineyards and wine. And it has some interesting um, characters were born there. It was a birthplace of the philosopher and mathematician and bane of many students, Pythagoras, who invented the Pythagorean theorem. And he was also a philosopher because he had this thing about beans. I don't know if you know about you shouldn't eat beans because that little bit of their soul comes out when you have gas. That was one of their things. But the Pythagoreans were definitely more than just geometers. They are philosophers. There's also this philosopher, Melissus of Samos. And Epicurus is from uh, Samos. 
as well as the Aris, Aristarchus. And he is the first known individual to say that the Earth revolves around the sun. Good work, Aristarchus. Good work is for sure. So yeah, Samos had some you know, some brain power there. Oh, oh, another one. Go ahead, yes, this is, this is on the west coast of Turkey today, Samos. Yep. Yes, it is. I think that's actually Samos. If you, oh, it could be a different one, but yeah, all those places are great, really, for travel. So that's not a fan of history. Um, you know, the tour when we do the tour, we're definitely gonna go to the Ionic uh, Greek area. It's probably better than to go to Nineveh. Oh yeah, probably, probably. Uh, especially since the Medes destroyed it. Exactly. One other guy from Samos that was, <laughs> he wrote the. Uh, I have this book about the Olympics, and it's so it had this little sidebar in it. And this guy was from Samos, and his name was Philanius. And he wrote what was like the Kama Sutra of the ancient world, the ancient Mediterranean world anyway. It's, most of it's lost, but there's some, you know, we have like references to it. So it included the position, the Kellis, which we've discussed before, the racehorse. But also maybe somebody would know this, it, what this might mean. We're not going to, you would have to email it to me. But it references another position which historians have translated as the lion on the cheese grater. <laughs> So it's a sexual position called the lion on the cheese grater. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> oh, I have images in my mind right now. Yeah. That I will not share with you. Please don't. I mean, the last episode we were talking, well, yeah. <sighs> anyway, I think that's funny, though. The lion on the cheese grater. So if anybody knows what that might be, just uh, message it. Send out. us a video. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Send us a video. Well, that's that on that particular colony. But there is another one. This is important. This is kind of a major event. I mean, it's the start of it. And this is the beginnings of how things are going to be for the next couple hundred years. What's going to go on in the, in the, in the Western um, Mediterranean. Because this is of the, around 600 BC, Greeks from Phocaea, which is another Ionic Greek um, place, founded Marseille in France, southern France. And they were apparently victorious over the Carthaginians in a naval battle. So this is the beginning of the Greco-Punic Wars. Starts around now. Like, this is when they really... I mean, the Greeks have been kind of agitating the Phoenicians we, and the Carthaginians. We, we discussed it at different times, how the Greeks set up colonies and the Carthaginians set up trading posts. And there's a lot of big area, but now they're really starting to rub against each other. This one wasn't appreciated at all. So for, but first I'm going to talk about this place and how far it is and that kind of thing. Because this one is really far. If you see the map there, it is. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's really far. So today it's Foka, Foksha in Turkey. All the way to Marseille is, if you drove, it would take you 30 hours. It is 2,762 kilometers, and which that's about 1,700 miles. That's by land. So they, it's about the same by sea, I would say. If you, when you're looking at it, just go around. You have to go around Italy and such. So it's a pretty long voyage. Yeah, make it, you know, they must have known where they were going. They wanted to go there. So, so it's Marseille today is the, it's the oldest city in France. It's still, and it's also one of Europe's oldest continually inhabited settlements. It's today the second most populated city in France. 870,000 inhabitants. And it's, it's located as a, at a super strategic spot to control uh, the river valleys north of it, and the tin trade coming from uh, the British Isles. A hundred percent. That's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it's there for. That's exactly why the Carthaginians weren't happy about it because the Carthaginians were more in Spain, you know. And so the the Greeks went in. Uh, they went into um, 
this part of France instead. So it was really, it wasn't, it was not um, good for the Carthaginians. They were not, we're going to talk, I'll, I don't have a lot on the naval battle, but I have a little bit. I'll, I'll get to it. Yeah, because like I said, by this time, the Greeks were all over the place. And they were starting to get over there to the west. And, you know, really, like a lot's going on when you think about it in the, in the Near East. You know, obviously, the, the Greeks must have known like, what's happening with Assyria. There's a, new, there's a new power coming around and stuff had to be, you know, people in Phoenicia must have been a little edgy. Stuff's going on as we're going to talk about in future episodes coming up soon here. But um, there was natives here, which is interesting. This, all this, this stuff, this clash of cultures reminds me of the, you know, when the English and Spanish found the, the Americas, you know, and then there was indigenous people that just, you know, they lived differently. They didn't have armor. They didn't have the kind of things to fight with. So this was called modern, so Southeast France was called Liguria. And the Greeks, this is where Greeks encountered Celts for the first time since the Mycenaean days. Um, when they arrived there, these, the Ligurians were, these are people of, like I said, Neolithic origins, you know, sort of like primitive farmers, hunter-gatherers, that kind of thing. But they had a culture. This was known as the proto-Celtic Urnfeld culture, Urnfield. So um, they actually, before they found this colony, Marseille, they had this other colony. It was called Heraclea. It's where it's a modern day Saint Blaise in southern France. It's like so. So traders from uh, the same area, like Rhodes and uh, Foca, in Asia Minor, had been around in this area of southern France for like one hundred fifty, two hundred years already before they founded Marseille. Yeah, maybe it says they. Um, yeah, they, at least a hundred years anyway. Some point in the seven hundreds, it looks like they were there, but they didn't have much of a of a big. Um, of a big presence. So yeah, that must be why they decided to move into the Marseille. If you'll see too, if you can see on a, if you ever look at a map, Marseille definitely has a better harbor. And eventually this, uh, the old site sort of got bad. The rivers got silted, they silted up the harbor and it didn't work good for their ships. So they, they, they definitely moved. Well, they didn't move. They just started another colony. They brought some settlers, but they obviously they knew that this was a good spot. It seems to be a, a really good spot. Yeah. It's still there now. <laughs> Second biggest city in Spain. So, yeah, the Greeks, it, it was a major event for the Euro, European peoples that were there at the time, the Celts and the, the Gauls. It, it, it really affected their formation as a distinct ethnic group because they mixed with the, they mixed with the Greeks and, and there's more things going on. It's sort of like, you know, in the Latin America today, there's the indigenous people and the Spanish mixed would create another, you know, basically like another, I don't like to use the word race, but, you know, another type, another people. So Massalia's foundation pretty much uh, closes this gigantic commercial network or starts this commercial network with trade coming down via the land route from the British Isles, from the North Sea even. Mm-hmm. So this, is, this must be a real uh, thumb in the eye for the Carthaginians. Yeah, 100%. 100%. It's like they, they don't even have, the Greeks don't even have to go all the way around like, like the Carthaginians were going. They just put this base there. And, you know, the Carthaginians were not necessary. Everybody likes to have a second option, right? I mean, like if you're selling only to the Carthaginians, then you're stuck whatever they're going to pay or whatever they're going to do. Or maybe they, so now they have a competitor, capitalism, right? Now the Greeks have their spot. So now the natives have different people to trade with. Interesting. There's, there's kind of, there's some interest, there's some really neat little, like, you know, stories about the, these clash of cultures here. There, we don't have much, you know, of course, all stuff is lost, but there was this historian, his name is Pompey Trogus. His stuff is lost. But there's, a, there's this other book which sums it up, and he's the book of Justin. And here's the, they have like a, you know, origin story of how this all went about. 
And this was written, of course, hundreds of years later, hundreds. Like that, he summed it up in like I think it's like one A.D. So it was a long time later. The the Justin guy summed up the other guy's thing. So according to him, these these uh, Phocaean seafarers were led by a guy named Protes. They left their homeland in order to establish a colony. After the long and dangerous journey, they arrived at the estuary of the Tiber, the port of Rome. Now this part, maybe, but... So it says the Romans were friendly to the Phocaeans, and they allied themselves with with their men and gave them supplies for the ongoing trip. From Rome, they sailed to the coast of modern province, and they landed in the territory of the natives known as the Seagull Bridges. And their king, Nanus, welcomed them. They landed there, coincidentally, <laughs> they landed there on just the same day that, that Nano's daughter, Gyptus, would choose a husband. And according to the local customs, the princess would make a selection during a symposium in which all the scions of the local aristocracy were invited. So it's kind of like Cinderella, right? At the dance, but the reverse. The princess gets to pick their uh, king. So anyway... So Nanus invited, that's the king, he invited the Greeks as well to the symposium without considering the consequences may happen. So the king gave a cup of water to his daughter, uh, asking her to offer it to the man who she wanted as a husband. And she passed it on. She passed off the Ligurian suitors and offered the cup to Prodes. So Nanus was obliged to give his daughter's hand to Prodes and also part part of his realm for the foundation of the new city of Masala. So obviously that's like a story. Probably, you know, it's got based in some sort of fact. Probably there was some agreement, you know, between the Greeks and these natives, and they gave them some land, and they sealed up with the marriage with the princess. And now they found their colony. And just like in the Americas, they, you know, they, they say, yeah, we'll take you guys. You're powerful. Now he, he could fight his enemies. Clever. Yeah, clever. So, but in any case, around 600 BC, which is where we are, right? The news reached Carthage of this event, and it threatened to undermine their supremacy in the Western Mediterranean. And like you said, it would confine them to their coast in Carthage, to the African coast. So the news that these colonists from Ionia, Ionia had landed their warships at the mouth of the Rhone in southern Gaul and established a base here at Marseille was, like, not good. So they've been the undisputed masters of the sea. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Right in the, in the Western Mediterranean. So this meant their competitors were like right in the midst of their trading area. So there, a battle ensued. I, don't, there, I couldn't find any really information on the specifics of the battle, which is, you know, common in this time. But I guess thanks to their swift warships, the Phocaeans had 50 oared galleys. They outmaneuvered and defeated the Carthaginians, and they secured this position on the coast of southern France. Interesting. I'm still impressed that they came from uh, southwest Turkey to do this. Seriously. Totally a far away. So, but I mean, it obviously was a good city. It is amazing. It is impre- it's so far, though. You're right, Dan. My gosh. Of the uh, Greek colonies established, this seems to be really well thought through that they are. Yeah. They have planned this for a long time. And they had that first colony, and then we can improve on this. Yeah. And yeah, then they, we, and it's, 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 they, I don't know, it's hard to say, like, you know, each, I guess, like, each Greek, Greek group is competing with each other, too, you know? It's, they're not like a, a unified thing. So it's probably, you know, some people, it'd be like if me and you said, like, hey, we're, we're sailors, you know, we're shipmen. We're like, oh, we can start a really good business over here and this place and that kind of thing. Well, it also tells us something about the power of Carthage in 600 BC, that they are not the state of Hannibal, that they, just some Greeks, can can win this battle and establish this important city and start to spread the Greek cultural influence in Gaul. Yeah, I think I think we will find out that maybe this is, like I say, this is a triggering, a triggering episode, you know, where now with all these Greeks and now the... Um, the Carthaginians would get more aggressive and more warlike and military. I think the Carthaginians were they were still dealing with people just in Libya, you know, just right where they were. They had Libyans on their, you know, border Carthage, and I know there was wars all along and the, since the founding with them. So I imagine that was like a big part of their, you know, concerns. And now all of a sudden these Greeks are coming. Plus the the mother city was still around, but we're going to find out that the mother city of Tyre doesn't stay around for much longer after the 600s BC. I love how the Roman author included Rome in this story. Exactly. I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> but it is on the way to Marseille. And uh, it is somewhere around here that the Roman port of Ostia, Rome's, Rome's harbor, is founded. Yeah. So in theory, this could have happened. Yeah, and it could have been with the Etruscans because the Etruscans were allied at, at this part. I think the Etruscans were allied with the Greeks, but then the Etruscans will... Um, become more allied with the Carthaginians. And we do have some information that the uh, Etruscans were seafarers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did some seafaring. And uh, it seems that the name, the Tyrrhenian Sea, uh, means the Etruscan Sea. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much the Tyrrhenians were uh, an Etruscan tribe. Yeah. Even the even Etruria was like, they were, they were sort of menaced by this, um, you know, the Greeks moving there because they were in a position, they controlled all the shipping. You know, off the Tyrrhenian Sea there, from southern Gaul all the way to Sicily. So they, they were wide open. They were sort of, you know, they kind of got along with the Carthaginians enough, and they were trading, and now here come these Greeks. Amazing. Later on, yeah. There's a little... So this might not be in the 600s, but I don't know when it is, and we're not going to, like, how are we going to know? So I would like... Just another little story about Marseille here. Marsalia, as it was called, um, the, in the colony. And this was right in the beginning. This was a little bit of something that happened with the natives. Because like happens in the Americas, you know, first you make a, uh, John Smith and Pocahontas get married. And then a couple of generations later, they're killing each other. Or I should say the, you know, the more powerful one is killing the natives. So 
it did become big. The, the, the settlement of Masala became big with the passage of time. And they were taking more and more land from the natives. And the natives are probably, you know, they're having their meetings too and going, these guys, we have to do something about this. So this other guy's name was Commonus, and he was Nana's successor. So that's the one who gave his daughter. He planned to reverse the situation. And, you know, there was some mistrust between the two groups and everything. So anytime the Ligurians came into the city, they had to disarm at the gates. They couldn't come in with any weapons. But this Commonist, the Ligurian, he had plans to conquer the city with treason during the Greek feast. During a Greek feast, let's just say. <laughs> um, so according to this plan, which is kind of cool, right? Because I get, get back at the Greeks with their own medicine. He, it's sort of like the Trojan horse. A group of armed Ligurians will be hidden beneath the foliage of the chariots of the festival parade. And that's how they would get into the city. And they would wait in their hiding places until dark. And then at night, they would open the gates of Massalia. And then the natives would come in and, you know, do a Trojan horse type of thing. But the Greeks were lucky because a native woman revealed the plan to her Greek lover, and he immediately informed the city's leaders. So on the day of the feast, the Greeks were ready. They attacked the Ligurians first and massacred Commodus and 7,000 of his men, which were basically almost all the warriors of the tribe. So they went pretty almost extinct, and because of their superior tactics, of course. I just, I would, I would wonder how such a battle would go, you know, like, if you ever see how the Spanish conquered um, uh, the Aztecs in Mexico, the Maya. No, the Aztecs. I mean, you know, there was like a hundred guys fighting against a thousand, you know, and they could just, because they're all armored and had swords, they could just, you know, beat so many of them. So it must have been like that. The Greeks were probably, you know, in all their armor and their hoplite positions and, huh. and natives come at them with their regular weapons and it didn't work. But so, so the last part about this, though, is after this, the Greeks in Massalia became very um, militaristic. So they became like a military society. And then they, when other Greeks would, would arrive there at the harbor of Massalia, they always observed that their citizens were unsmiling, serious, and strict. So they became Sparta 2.0. Yeah. So, but now, so now this is like, if you look up the, you know, the, Greek, the Greco-Carthage Wars, they, it won't say it started in 600, but really it was, it's not too much longer where they officially start. And a lot of the wars are over. You'll, we're going to find out. We're going to be talking about this. For the next couple hundred years, where they're fighting over Sicily, but this they didn't, you know, they didn't idly sit by either. They became more like more aggressive against the Greeks, the Carthaginians did, and the same with the Etruria. Now they had to like make a, you know, see what's going to happen. So for several hundred years, the Mediterranean has been big enough for two civilizations or three. Yeah, but now it's not big enough. It's not big enough for everybody. We're not even into the Romans yet, but we're we're just talking about the Etruscans, the Greeks, and the Carthaginians. Yep. That's it. So they say, like, what were the Etruscans going to do? Prepare a naval expedition to Massalia? Maybe they will. We'll just have to stay tuned to find out. Interesting. That's a major development. And we'll see the, the Greeks and the Carthaginians fight it out for, uh, like, almost 400 years. Something like that. A long time. And then the, then the, the poor Carthaginians, and then they got to fight the Romans. Exactly. You know, maybe they should have sacrificed more babies. That would have made it better. <laughs> hey, you know what the problem is? You're not sacrificing enough babies. If we sacrifice more babies, we'll be able to defeat our enemies. That's that's the end of that part. Of a little. This is kind of Greece. I guess I could we could talk about this in Greece. Oh no, because I saw the Olympics, so this is Greece too. Would you say yeah, Smyrna is a Greek city? Oh, well, of course it is. Yeah, so that's Smyrna's a Greek city, and around 600 BC, it's sacked and destroyed by Alietes of Lydia. So uh, Smyrna was a Greek city. It 
it was a it was a good it was a big trading city. It was sort of always right in the heart of Lydia, so it was on an essential trade route between Anatolia and the Aegean, and it was you know a big city. And even like when Gyges, my friend Gyges, took over, uh, he tried to uh, attack. He tried to conquer Smyrna, but he wasn't able to. He was defeated on the banks of the Hermes River. So that showed that you know Smyrna was a pretty strong enough um, town. It had a strong fortress, had massive walls. It was on a hill. So, you know, Greeks knew how to set up something. But we do know it was destroyed in 600 BC. We don't know exactly what the political situation was, but this guy Theogenes, Theogenes, he was writing in about 500 BC. He says that pride destroyed Smyrna. The degeneracy of their citizens of his day, they could no longer stem the Lydian advance. So Aliettes, he conquered and sacked it. And we'll talk more about Aliettes later, the king of Lydia. Yeah, this is Aliettes the third, because I know we had another Aliettes. But yeah, the archaeological evidence does show that it was sacked around then, and it never really came back as a big city. It was just a little small town. There's Greeks there and stuff, but they pulled down their walls and stuff, so that was that. So now pretty much it's a Lydian town. Yeah, pretty much. That's how it goes. Sort of like when, you know, like your body, if you get a new organ and your body tries to reject it, sort of like that. Like you're like too close to our, they, people just reject them. And we'll see the power of Lydia rise until, until the Battle of the Eclipse, but that's still a few years away. Yeah, it is. There's a lot going on in that area. And it's interesting how the Greeks now are appearing everywhere, so they are touching into other parts of our narrative. They are. And we're, I mean, we're coming into the 500s, and then, you know, that's... I mean, it's funny, like, when I had ancient history as a kid, it was always in the Greeks, it kind of everything seemed to start with, like, the Persian Wars, right? So we're, like, leading up to all that. Yes, we still have a lot of way to go before the Persian Wars. We do. But we do. I will talk about a Persian king of Manchan in in this decade. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that's what I mean. We're just sort of like foreshadowing this stuff that's going to happen. There's lots of happens in between, too, of course. It's like we're stepping into a new world now big, big, with the fall of Assyria and all this stuff. It's so like we're stepping into a new world. Maybe that's what we should call the whole 600s, you know? Stepping in, maybe we'll call that the next episodes, the 500, stepping into a new world. Yeah, so that wraps it up for the Greeks. Well, I have the Olympics. Oh, go, go ahead. Yeah, because I always forget them. I got the Olympics. We, got, we don't have much on the people, but you have the winners. So this, so 608 BC would have been the 43rd Olympiad. And Cleon of Epidaurus, he won the stadium. Say it. Way to go, Cleon. <laughs> Good work, Cleon. <laughs> there you go. All right. And also, Hipposthenes of Laconia, he won in wrestling. That's a Spartan, right? I think, yes, it is a Spartan. They changed the, um, yes, it is a Spartan. They changed the, um, the format here of the, where, I used to, where, my, where I get this information. Yes. And the 44th Olympiad, which was 604 BC, this, I love this name. He, this guy who won the stadium, Gelon the Lacedonian. Good work, Gellon. Good work. And the last one, oh, we have another one. We have the 45th Olympiad, which is uh, 600 BC. The stadium was won by Antocrates of Epidaurus. Uh, good work, Epidaurus. Two victors good in work. this decade. Yeah. Out of four, so two Spartans and two Epidaurinians. Yeah, you're right. Two Epidaurinians and two Laconians slash Spartans. We'll be able to get into more detail on the Olympics pretty soon, right? Yeah, I think so. I would love to do an episode on it, too. I have a book. I've written The Naked Olympics. I recommend it. It's really good. It's, it's well written, too. It's very easy to read, I should say. It's written by more of a, 
of a of a journalist. So it's not real dry. Really interesting. Yeah. Oh, let's do that in the five nineties, perhaps. Yeah, I would like to maybe do something like that. Just a little in between there. I mostly read the book. I also like to point out the fact that now they managed to keep up this tradition of the Olympics for 45 times, four years between each time. That's pretty impressive. It is impressive. And if you and we'll, if we do talk, get to it. I mean, you, I mean, it's far. These people have to come really far to go to the Olympics. Where is Epidaurus? I don't know. Let's look. Let's see. Oh, it's on uh, on the Argolic Peninsula at the Saronic Gulf, sort of. Halfway between uh, Sparta and Athens. Yeah, I mean, it takes. It took a. It took. It took like two, two or three weeks to get to Olympia from Athens. I mean, you know, you didn't take a car. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of mountains in Greece. Yeah, it's a whole thing. I mean, but the whole deal was, you know, you had the truth. So the truce, so people could get, you know, go from place to place. But like, it was hot there in Olympus, and it was like, there wasn't any water. I mean, it's pretty crazy. You had to really want to go. People love their sports. They do, and their festivals. This is how you meet your wives, and you're, you know, it's like going to the barn dance. You go to, go to the Olympics, and you, but they didn't have a lot of women at the Olympics. But we, we won't have to get into all of it. But it wasn't. There's a lot of naked guys. There was, least. except for the Spartans that were had some naked women, as you told us. There was more naked guys. But let's go on to uh, someone who wasn't often naked and is now trying to become the ruler of the world, Nabo Pulasar himself. All right, we're going to do that next time, I think. Yes. All right, the ruler of the world. He came up from small beginnings, and he will become, or he's going to try, become the ruler of the world. Good work. Thank you. Well, make sure you, you know, check our Facebook page out. I got a lot of new fans. We have a lot of new fans on there. So I would love it if you guys message me. Tell me what you think. Give me suggestions, anything. Anything I'd love to hear from the fans, for sure. Also, give us iTunes reviews. I can see the Swedish ones, and Bernie can see the US ones. So we'll try to read them in the podcast. Yeah, especially, yeah, definitely we will. And if, if, you, if you think that we are, are like a spicy falafel soup with sour cream on top, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to Babylonia. All right, next time. See you later, Dan. See you later. Cheers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon patreon.com slash fan of history just a dollar an episode would help us out thanks and see you next time